You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm excited to be joined with author Mark Hawthorne, who wrote The Way of the Rabbit, and this book is is amazing. It, it, it was a great read to learn everything about rabbits. I learned a lot, uh, a lot of new facts, a lot of history, but Mark, I just want to say welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh yeah, no, th- th- you know, thank you. And I-, I was so excited when I got the copy of this book and it's just, you know, the beautiful cover with the rabbit on there, but you kind of forget that we have such a, a love for these animals and culturally they're important. So we're going to get into a lot of this today in-, in the history of rabbits, but before we get going, can you just kind of give our listeners a, you know, a background where you grew up and, you know, where did your interest in nature begin? Uh, I grew up in California, in uh, the Los Angeles area. And in about 1990, I was privileged to, uh, to travel, to, to see the world for a couple of years. And you know, I grew up eating animals and uh, thinking of myself as a compassionate person. I never really made that connection between uh, what I put on my plate and uh, maybe a kinder lifestyle. But when I was in Europe, I decided I was going to go to Pamplona and run with the bulls. And I got down there and I did the bull run. And I think I was probably the only person there who felt ashamed because how I, how I saw these uh, bulls being treated, you know, by the people like me who did this bull run. And, you know, yeah, I knew they were going to die in the bullfights, but for some reason I just felt this, this great shame. And it was the first time that I made a connection with another animal uh, in a way that I hadn't before with companion animals. You know, I grew up with dogs and cats and all kinds of other animals, but for some reason, seeing how these bulls were treated really affected me. And I, and I wish I could say that I changed my lifestyle right then and there, but I didn't. Uh, it took a little bit longer than that. Um, a couple months later, I was living in India and I was living up in the Himalayas with a Buddhist family, and almost all the food that I ate came out of their garden. So I was essentially living as a vegan, which to me was a completely 
alien concept. I, I really didn't know what that meant. I, all I knew is that I felt really good physically, and I even felt good spiritually. And one day, uh, the family I was living with, uh, they took, uh, they went out into the yard and they, they harvested all the fruits and vegetables because winter was coming and they didn't have a refrigerator. So they dug a big hole in the yard and they buried the fruits and vegetables. And then they let a cow come in to the yard and nibble on the remaining stalks and stems. And I was standing just a few feet away from this, you know, this beautiful cow. And I just realized, you know, she has as much desire and as much, uh, as much right to live as I did. So I stopped eating cows and I eventually gave up or stopped eating other animals. I don't like to say the word gave up because that kind of uh, implies that there's a sacrifice there. And it's really not, you know, when you, when you stop eating animals or you become vegan like I am, you know, you really, you really opened up to a whole new world of, of tastes and textures and, and uh, uh, cuisines. And so that was the, that was a big change for me. As I say, I felt that I was a compassionate person, but having these two experiences, these two bovine encounters, as I like to say, um, had a big impact on me. And then I got back to the United States and uh, was a vegetarian and started doing writing uh, in various publications. I had met a lot of Tibetan refugees when I was in India because it was very close to the Tibetan border and uh, vi visited a Tibetan refugee camp and uh, just heard a lot of stories. And so when I got back to the States, I volunteered for a Tibetan support group and was writing for their newsletter. And so I was doing sort of social justice writing. But as I got more and more into the vegetarianism, I was writing about those issues. And I was doing an article about the history of vegetarianism. And it had me doing reading that I hadn't really considered before. So I, was, I read John Robbins' book, Diet for a New America. And it really had me questioning my consumption of, of dairy and, and eggs. And I went to a sanctuary for farmed animals where some of these animals had been rescued from the dairy and the egg industry. And that day I just stopped supporting dairy and, and eggs. I just didn't want to be in support of those uh, industries anymore. So I went vegan and that was 20 years ago and have been doing most of my writing now about animals and about uh, animal rights and vegan issues. There's a lot to unpack there. That is, uh, you know, an amazing story going to Spain. And yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, we always try to be neutral in the podcast, but yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that the, the bullfighting is, is, is horrific and uh, there's a lot of animal welfare issues there. So that, that definitely would, would open my eyes. Uh, but then going to Tibet and then coming back home to the States, that, that's that's amazing. And becoming a vegan when it wasn't really mainstream 20 years ago, right? Like, you know, I, I, I want to talk more about rabbits, but I find it interesting that, you know, kind of being a leader in the movement, you know, one thing we do talk about in the podcast and, you know, we're scientists and we base a lot of what we say on, on research is, you know, in America and in Western culture, we eat too much meat as it is. I guess briefly, you know, becoming a vegan 20 years ago compared to today, how hard was that? It wasn't as hard as you might think. And I think the reason was, is because I was doing it for the animals. I think people who go vegan for, say, health reasons might have more of a challenge 
because you don't have that passion, that same passion. Whereas if you're stopping the consumption of animals because you love animals, you know, because you're a compassionate person and don't want to contribute to these industries and don't want to contribute to animal suffering, there's such a high level of motivation that I didn't think twice about it. It, it does take a lot of education. I, I, and I recommend people understand what it means to eat healthy as a vegan. But I, it, it, I never, you know, looking back on it, I don't look at it as, oh, that was a really tough time. Um, it was a, it was a, a learning experience for me. I got to meet a, a lot of people who taught me about what it meant to be vegan, and I read a lot of books. Uh, I got rid of all my old cookbooks, and I, I got new cookbooks because I love to bake. Uh, and so it wasn't that difficult. Um, it's certainly a lot easier today. I think vegans going vegan today not only have more choices in terms of analog foods, you know, meat substitutes and things like that. But there's just a lot more information out there, and it's a lot more mainstream. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was looked upon as a bit odd, uh, whereas today, it's really, you know, people would probably think nothing of it if I told them, oh, yeah, I just went vegan. No, it's true. It's true. And, you know, it, it's uh, the plant-based meats or plant-based alternatives. I, I see it here in New Zealand. You know, I go, you know, go to any restaurant and there's, you know, plant-based burgers Nando's in the UK and, and has a plant-based chicken that is absolutely delicious. So mm-hmm. there is definitely more alternatives. I just, I just wanted to jump on that real quick. Cause I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So how did that lead to rabbits? Like what is your fascination with them? And why did you say, okay, I'm going to write a book and, and, and take two years out of my life to write about rabbits. Um, they're actually pretty connected because after I went vegan and felt comfortable as a vegan, in, in other words, I felt like I, was, I, I wasn't going to turn back. You know, I was very passionate about it, and I was doing well at, at it. I really wanted to do more for animals. I knew the next step was to become an advocate. And I had always loved rabbits. They always held a, a special place in my heart. Even as a child, I loved reading stories, you know, with Peter Rabbit and uh, Winnie the Pooh and and then the cartoons as I got older. Uh, and so as a, as a vegan, I looked upon rabbits as kind of kindred spirits, right? You know, they're, they're gentle, they're herbivores. And so I thought, well, maybe the next step for me would be to volunteer for a rabbit rescue group. And I didn't know quite what that entailed. I didn't know if that meant I was going to be volunteering at a shelter or what. So I called my local rabbit rescue group, Save a Bunny, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the founder there told me that the best thing that I could do would be to foster a rabbit. So in other words, take a rabbit into my home who was at the shelter or at the sanctuary because they have limited space there and help socialize, help, help make this rabbit more adoptable. And so I did that and promptly bonded with this rabbit and adopted the rabbit and then that happened again and again and again. And so I was what what they call a foster failure. You know, I kept just falling in love with these animals and just <laughs> realizing what tremendous companions they are and how how just how fascinating they are as individuals. And so that led to me becoming more involved with the rabbit rescue world, that, that community. And I eventually adopted uh, eight rabbits and I have a rabbit here in my home. Um, some months ago, my wife and I were walking in our neighborhood, 
and found two abandoned rabbits. Uh, we, I suspect that they were former Easter bunnies. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, some parents gave their kids a couple of rabbits for Easter, and then the novelty wore off. You know, parents don't realize how much work is involved in having a rabbit in your home, and they just let them free. You know, they they thought they think that rabbits are just too fine out in the wild, and that's not the case. You know, domesticated mm-hmm. rabbits are very different from wild rabbits. So we scooped them up and we brought them home and I thought that I would be able to find homes for them. And another, uh, the group that's local to me now, the rabbit Haven in near the San Jose area helped me to get them spayed and neutered. Uh, unfortunately the female had some complications with her surgery and she passed away, which was very, very heartbreaking for us. Um, but the male is with us. We named him Benito. And uh, he's just uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful addition to the family and has a lot of personality. And you know, to be honest, Chris, I, after our bunny Sophie died in 2013, we, we decided we weren't going to have any more rabbits because it was just so heartbreaking to have animals. But uh, we, you know, we couldn't let Benito um, face you know, possible euthanasia or something. So, so we adopted him. So that kind of brings me up to speed, uh, brings us up to speed on where I am with rabbits. It, it, it's heartbreaking when one thing I used to do, I used to do wildlife rehab when I was a professor at Clemson and rabbits were the hardest, uh, to rehab because they stress out and die. And it, 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 it breaks your heart because they are the cutest things. Not to say our baby squirrels weren't cute or our right. baby possums weren't cute, the baby bunnies were just like, wow, just so adorable. And w- when they passed away because of stress and stuff, it just oh, it breaks your heart. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very heartbreaking. So that leads me to the question. Not only are they just adorable, right? And, and, and just charismatic. You look at them and you're just like your heart melts. What also makes rabbits so special? Rabbits, I think, are special because there's something about them that exists on a dividing line, you know, whether that's imaginary or whether we really process it consciously, they are, they're wild and they're tame. You know, we, we know them as individuals in popular culture. We know them as individuals in our homes, but we also see them in the forest or we see them in uh, the city, even, you know, in green spaces. And there's something magical about them because they're kind of our, a connection to a, a nature that's disappearing, you know, a, a wild part of our, uh, of our community that is rapidly being developed. And so I think that that's, you know, that may be a little too philosophical. And as I say, I don't know that we process that consciously, but for me, that's, that, that resonates. And I think that's, that's one reason that rabbits are special. And another is, is that they're, they're everywhere in, in mythology and in literature and in, uh, in, in movies and in cartoons and on greeting cards and in advertisements and, you know, other animals are too, but there's something about rabbits. Maybe it's their, the way that they're so gentle or because they're connected to mythology in a way, you know, magic and rebirth and rejuvenation that makes them, um, I think extra special as beings. There just is, there just is a, a, a draw to them. And 
I asked that question up front because your whole book is about them being special. And so we're going to get into some of it, but I just wanted to hear you kind of set that up because reading through the chapters, again, for the listeners, this is a very easy read, The Way of the Rabbit. It it it, it, it brought up a lot of stuff that, that I had no idea about them, especially when it comes to culture and mythology. But where I wanted to start, because we we really do focus a lot on animal conservation. You know, we are in this mass extinction event that we're seeing around the world across all taxa. And that includes rabbits. So I wanted to ask you, because you do touch upon it a little bit in the book, but how are wild rabbits doing out there? Well, rabbits face a lot of threats. And uh, most of these threats are caused by humans. Uh, There's deforestation and hunting, for example. uh, And that's meant that uh, the Anamite rabbit, the, excuse me, the Anamite uh, striped rabbit, a species that was only discovered in Vietnam in 1999, is already listed as endangered. There's climate change, which has left the riverine rabbit of South America, uh, South Africa critically vulnerable. Uh, there's animal agriculture, there's logging uh, and urban development. And those have all put, for example, Mexico's volcano rabbit under threat. But fortunately, Biologists and governments recognize really the importance of rabbits as a species and are making efforts to save them. Uh, I mentioned the Mexico volcano rabbit. And so in Mexico, uh, biologists are working to save this little volcano rabbit by educating the local locals about uh, how important the environment is. And you know, here in the United States, New England cottontails are under threat. Their range has been shrinking and biologists are trying to restore their numbers by placing, the, uh, well, they started off placing 13 cottontails onto an island near Martha's Vineyard and letting them reproduce and flourish and then bringing them back to the mainland. Um, there's also the pygmy rabbit in uh, the Columbia Basin of Washington State, and they've been suffering dwindling numbers for years. Um, and you know, there's kind of a heartbreaking story there because they, they got hit with a, a wildfire last year that really devastated those numbers there. Um, so anyway, there's just some examples. There's, there's, yeah. you know, all over the world, uh, rabbits are under threat. Yeah, no, we do. We, we definitely need to cover some more of these species because, you, you know, I made some notes too. I'd, I'd really like to, to look into some of these animals and, and the pressures that they're facing because generally we think, Oh, rabbits are everywhere. You know, rabbits are fine when that's not the case, you know, just like any other species out there. Right. Now I want to flip the coin because we, we just talked about rabbits in an area of the world and that's Australia where they're doing a little too nice. They're doing a little too well and they're actually a big problem. And, and, and I pulled this quote from the book and I just want to say it real quick. Thomas Austin in 1859 in Australia, quote, said, the introduction of a few rabbits could do little harm and might provide a touch of home. Now, why are rabbits such a problem for Australia? I mean, in your research and stuff, have you come across anything? I mean, I covered it in a a recent episode, but, you know, and I even see them here in New Zealand on my walks. They're not native to New Zealand and uh, I, I see a bunch of them and I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't know there were so many rabbits here. Right. Well, as you said, Thomas Austin thought it would be a great idea to bring some rabbits down uh, to Australia. He was an Englishman. 
1859 had, I think his brother or one of his other relatives uh, ship um, some rabbits. I've read reports that it was 13 rabbits. I've read reports that it, most reports that it was two dozen. And he let him go. He had a big parcel of land near Melbourne, Australia, and uh, thinking that he would hunt them. They'd, repro they'd reproduce and he'd hunt them. Well, they reproduced very, very well. They uh, became a problem. They had no natural predators except humans. And they flourish. You know, rabbits don't need a lot to really flourish because they do reproduce so rapidly. They really just need a food source and some shelter. Um, some rabbits can even last through a drought. You know, they don't need that much water, some of them. So in Australia, they became a huge agricultural problem. Farmers considered them a pest. And around the same time, the exact same situation happened in New Zealand. And again, there were in New Zealand, they had no natural predators and they just reproduced abundantly and are now considered a pest. I know that there's a, unfortunately, there's an annual rabbit killing contest in New Zealand and um, it's very sad, but it's celebrated because they consider these animals to be a menace. Yeah, it's tough. It, it, it is tough here in New Zealand because these invasive species have really devastated native species. So it, it, that's a philosophical debate for another day. It, it is definitely debated here with using, you know, poisons and some of the things that they do here to uh, reduce populations. Right. Because I mean, generally rabbits do well all over the world. And like I said, in Australia, New Zealand, maybe too well, but talking about, you know, shifting gears a little bit to, about their history. A lot of stories in the book, and they're fascinating, and it's fun to read a lot of this, but do you have any favorites where rabbits are such an important part of a specific culture? You know, rabbits are represented in in so many different cultures, um, Native American and, and Asian cultures. I, I have a, there's a, a story that takes place or that comes out of the Asian culture that I really love. You know, rabbits are, have a mythical connection to the moon. And one reason why, maybe because the rabbit's normal gestation period is 30 days, you know, like the lunar cycle. And one of the stories I love is the legend of Jade Rabbit. And in this myth, the highest ruler of heaven and, and the gods was called the Jade Rabbit, uh, excuse me, the Jade Emperor. And one day he disguises himself as a poor uh, elderly man and goes begging for food from the animals on earth and uh, a jackal a monkey and an otter all gather food for him but their friend the rabbit was only experienced with eating grass and so he knows that humans really don't eat grass so he throws himself onto a fire so that he could offer his own body as food well fortunately before the rabbit could be burned uh, the jade emperor pulls him out of the flames and is so moved by the rabbit's demonstration of um, self-sacrifice that he sends him to live on the moon as the jade rabbit. I'm not quite sure that's the greatest reward, but nonetheless, that's the story. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, what, yeah. I, what I find interesting is that the Buddhists have an almost identical story, except that in their version, the rabbit tells the other animals that um, the next full moon, again, the connection with rabbits in the moon, uh, is going to mark a holy day and that any beggars who come around should be given food. And the Buddha himself shows up uh, dressed as a beggar 
And the story continues just like the Jay Rabbit story. And depending on uh, the variation of the story, the Buddha either carves the rabbit's image on the moon or sends him to live there. And uh, in some uh, versions of the story, the rabbit even shakes his fur free of insects uh, before jumping into the fire. And this story helps explain why so many cultures see a rabbit image in the moon and not a man in the moon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Now, talking about their history too, uh, the other question I had was their domestication. Do we know where they were first domesticated and when? We don't exactly know when and where, but it's probably linked to the Romans um, because the Romans discovered the European rabbit, uh, the Latin name, Oryctolicus caniculus. And the European rabbit was a native of the Iberian Peninsula, which was part of the so-called Roman Empire. And the Romans discovered the European rabbit, or Oryctolicus caniculus, and they used the rabbit in various ways. They kept them in parks, and they used them for food. And there's even some evidence to suggest that they kept them as pets. And so that's probably where the whole idea of, of uh, domesticating rabbits got started with the Romans. Yeah, no, and, and you know, the, the silver fox study is a classical study that's still ongoing. So it takes about 50 generations, we think, to domest- fully domesticate an animal. So with rabbits, I mean, that would go relatively within a few years, you, theoretically, right? Yeah, right. Because, yeah, how they reproduce, yeah. So quickly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I know this is all kind of mixed in, but, you know, talk about some folklore. Mm-hmm. And the one I want to talk about is how did rabbits become associated with Easter? You know, where did that begin? Well, there are a number of theories uh, about how the rabbit became associated with Easter. One has to do with a spring goddess named Yoster, who possibly had a cult following in early Britain and whose sacred animal was supposedly a rabbit or a hare. Uh, Rabbits and hares kind of get mixed up in legends, depending on if the culture had a rabbit or a hare in their vicinity. But um, the most reliable evidence that we have for the existence of Yoster worship is from a Benedictine monk named Bede, uh, B-E-D-E. Bede makes, uh, Bede makes no mention of her with any rabbits, hares, or any other animals. And in fact, a, a more reliable connection between Yoster and logomorphs occurs in the late 19th century, where we find a legend in which the goddess turns a, a bird into a hare. And this would explain, maybe, how this little mammal might be able to lay eggs. Another theory, and one that I think is is much more plausible, is connected to the English countryside, which is home to both hares and birds called lapwings. And lapwings make their nests in a shallow depression in the soil, and this is what hares do as well. They don't burrow underground; they they have nests on a, a little uh, above ground on these in these little depressions. And it's not uncommon for the two species, the lapwing and the hare, to borrow each other's nests. So it's easy to imagine somebody walking along, disturbing a hare on a nest and watching the hare run away and then finding a clutch of eggs uh, in the nest. And from there, people just uh, make the connection. So that's, you know, a couple uh, leading theories. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Right, 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 right. It's just because, you you know, the Easter Bunny, obviously. Right. You know, my kids down here, you know, the Easter Bunny. Now, in Australia, it's not a bunny, right? Well, Australia, as we've <laughs> said, considers the rabbit a pest. So they have the Easter yeah. bilby, which is a, a marsupial. Right, right. I think it's funny. I think it's funny. Yeah. Now, one of the things, I, especially with folklore, is rabbit sign of fertility. How is that? Where, where did that originate? And, and we're still carrying that down through the centuries, right? Well, I think it starts because rabbits are so prolific as, uh, you know, in their reproduction, right? I mean, they have a 30-day gestation period. Uh, a rabbit can become pregnant. A female rabbit can become pregnant again an, within an hour after giving birth. Um, you know, she, she gives birth to four or five what are called kits or kittens. And, and that's kind of nature's way of ensuring their survival is this rapid reproduction. And I think that it's very easy to associate an animal who reproduces so readily with the whole idea of fertility. And it's because rabbits are still very popular, probably more popular than ever. Uh, it's very easy to make that connection throughout the centuries. Do you know where the sign of rabbits, like especially the rabbit foot, which I'm sure you probably see in a cringe. I haven't seen them in a long time, but where a rabbit's foot or a rabbit was a sign of good luck? Rabbits are have been either a sign of good luck or a sign of bad luck, depending on the culture. And I don't know exactly why that is. There was a time in England when rabbits were so ubiquitous that farmers and, and people in England believed that that both sexes, the males and the females, could give birth. And they felt that seeing a rabbit in your field was auspicious. You know, it was a, it was a great time for uh, 
uh, for having a baby, you know, a human baby, for mm -hmm. example. It was a great time for a harvest. So there's a lot of these legends, and I don't exactly know why we think that a rabbit is good luck. I don't, it's, you know, it's very unfortunate that we still think that rabbits' feet are good luck. Yeah, I think I, it's more of a toy these days. Uh, my, mm -hmm. wife, my wife and I were in a, uh, a small town, uh, uh, kind of a country market, uh, some weeks ago, and they were selling rabbits' feet. And I thought at first that they were fake, and then I went up and touched them, and I could feel the nails still inside the the foot, and it was just heartbreaking, you know, that we would think that that that, that there's some connection with with good luck. Yeah, especially today, you know, where things have. When I was a kid, that was like you didn't give it a second thought, but now today, you think about it, and you're like, all right, that was on an animal, right. <laughs> that was on a rabbit, and right. you know, what? Why am right. I carrying this around for good right. luck? I, yeah. Well, I think part of it is that it's a a byproduct of the slaughter industry and that, you know, it's just one more piece of the rabbit's body that can be sold. Right, um, right. And so people do it. Yeah. 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 Now switching gears a little bit, going to more recent popular culture where rabbits still play a, a big role. One, if we could just talk about it briefly, I don't know if people know the history of Beatrix Potter it caught my eye because last year with my partner, Pippa, I was, I was in the Lake, Lakes District in the UK, and I had no idea that in Windermere and that region that, you know, the tale of Peter Rabbit uh, was born. So we talk a little bit about that, but like, you know, I guess my question is not only the history of Peter Rabbit, but some of these other stories that have been woven in to popular culture in the last hundred years that we can all identify with. Well, sure. Uh, well, Beatrix Potter was uh, an artist. She was, you know, just a, a very gifted painter, a writer, and uh, obviously a rabbit lover. She had a number of companion rabbits, and she used them as models for her paintings. And she used uh, a letter she had written to the son of her former governess as the foundation of her first book, which was called The Tale of Peter Rabbit. Uh, I believe it was written in 1900. And she had trouble getting it published, so she published it privately. But it was such a success that a publisher finally picked it up. And it was commercially published in 1902. And the story features Peter and his sisters and their mother. And Peter is depicted as a very naughty child who disobeys his mother and sneaks into the vegetable garden of a local farmer. And what I love about this book is how Beatrix Potter illustrates the rabbits. Um, they're depicted as anatomically correct rabbits, not as exaggerated cartoon characters. Uh, of course, they walk upright and speak English, but it's <laughs> you know it's a children's story after all. Right, right, uh, it was right. it was it was hugely popular. I don't think it's ever been out of print. And she was able to afford a, a farm in the Lake District, Hilltop Farm, which she eventually gifted to the National Trust in England. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice legacy for her because she, mm. you know, the, the, the animals she loved in some way and the, and the environment she loved, the, the hillside she loved and, and captured in her books are now protected because she donated the land. Right, right. But I mean, it, it, it just it weaves 
rabbits into our culture where, you know, as a kid, you read this. My, one of my favorites was Watership Down. I know before we, we started recording, we talked about that. And it, and it is a, a tough story. You know, Richard Adams is one of my all-time favorite writers. And, you know, I guess as a young kid, it's kind of the reality of the wild. But what other books that were rabbits take center stage that people may not know about? Yeah, let's talk about Watership Down for a second, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because it's an important part of, of the history of rabbits in popular culture. And, you know, he, Richard Adams was a civil servant, and he was not a writer. He just really admired rabbits. And he was talking about rabbits uh, to his two daughters. They had these long drives they would take. And to entertain them, he made up this story. And it involves this, uh, this band of brave rabbits who need to relocate their warren in southern England. And, and they have a series of adventures, sometimes violent adventures. And uh, the rabbits have their own, their own culture, their own language, uh, even though they communicate mainly in English. And much of what Adams wrote is based on the work of a Welsh naturalist named uh, Ronald Lockley. And in the 1950s, he studied rabbit behavior for the British Nature Conservancy and wrote a book called The Private Life of the Rabbit, which was published in 1964. And Watership Down was published in uh, 1972 and it was a huge critical and commercial success and it spawned films and a sequel. And I think it really established rabbits in in popular culture in a way that hadn't been done probably previously, because even though Watership Down ostensibly is a book for children, it's a very adult story. You know, it's a novel and it's easily accessible to adults, probably even more so in some ways, because parts of it are so horrifying. So I think that Watership Down has a very uh, important place in the history of rabbits in, in, in popular culture, because we hadn't seen anything like that before. So uh, even though I wouldn't recommend it as a nice, uh, safe bedtime read, uh, yeah. I, I think it's <laughs> I, I think it's very important for rabbits, and and they were shown in a way that was much more realistic, much more mm-hmm. uh, true to a rabbit's character probably than something like Winnie the Pooh, which, as much as I love that, it's probably not the most accurate representation of an yeah. animal. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, it's just still one of one of the books that just had such an impact on my life as a as a young child and my love for nature and yeah. the realities of it sometimes. And some of the other things you wrote in the book that I really enjoyed was, um, you know, how we refer to rabbits like conies. Uh, the only thing that clicked with me, obviously, living here in New Zealand, living in the Shire is, you know, when Samwise Ganges uh, talking about a brace of conies, uh, how we refer to rabbits as conies. But also bunny. I don't know if we could touch upon it, but we, we frown upon that word today, I guess, a little bit. Well, yeah, it's we frown on it a little bit because of its more modern connection to like Playboy bunnies and, mm-hmm. you know, beach bunnies and, and ski bunnies, I guess. And there's that association with rabbits as, uh, you know sexual beings, you know, readily Mm -hmm. ready to reproduce. And so that can be kind of sad, but you know, the word bunny, I, I I don't find it to be offensive really. It's just, uh, you know, some people have, have construed it as something that's less than complimentary perhaps. 
Right, right. Yeah, no, I just did. I found that fascinating. Now, one story I, I kind of wanted to ask you about, and that was the story of, of and this is, again, switching gears about mm-hmm. rabbits in the, in the home. Mm-hmm. And you tell the story of Ed and Darcy Murphy and the rabbit named Robin. Right. Can you just kind of sum that one up? I found when I hear these in, in popular press or in a book like this, I, I just always smile and I love our connection to our animals. But can you just kind of sum that one up? Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. Because one of the things that I'm really proud of in this book is that I do devote a whole chapter to rabbits who actually existed, rabbits who have actually have have had a place in history, and kind of uh, helped to contextualize them as individuals. And the story of uh, the Murphys, uh, I think it was in 2004, and uh, Ed and Darcy are living in uh, Illinois, and they have uh, a rabbit named Robin who sleeps in a cage outside their bedroom door. And Ed is a very sound sleeper, but about three o'clock one morning, he wakes up hearing Robin making just a terrific ruckus in the cage. And he gets up and checks on Robin and doesn't see anything wrong. So he goes back to bed, but he notices that Darcy is lying there with her eyes wide open. And she is... Uh, acting like she's having a nightmare and um, she's pregnant and she uh, uh, has low blood sugar. So Ed gets some cake frosting and feeds it to her. He calls an ambulance and she spends a few days in the hospital, but she and the baby are fine. And her doctor says that Darcy had received uh, too much insulin and had gone into shock and that that Robin, the rabbit, had saved her life. And an animal behaviorist at uh, Texas A&M University thinks that Robin could sense the ketone odors that Darcy's body was producing. So, you know, I love that story. I love stories of animals who obviously have a a deep connection with their human companions and have have compassion and demonstrate it outwardly like that. Uh, it was it was an amazing story. It was I, I just love hearing that stuff, and they just our connection with with animals. And again, that's why our, our our fans listen to our podcast. They just have such a deep connection to our two animals. And so my my next question I want I wanted to lead you to into is rabbits as pets. Are they good pets? You know, you're, you're an experienced rabbit pet owner, but what are some of the things that people should be aware of uh, if they want to keep them as a pet, as a companion, you know? If I were writing this, I would say rabbits are great companions slash pets with an asterisk. And the asterisk at the bottom is that you need to educate yourself first. You need to understand that rabbits are not necessarily great starter pets. They require a lot more work, I would say, than a dog or a cat. Um, They are prey animals, so they do not tell you when they're sick. Uh, You have to be very in tune with the rabbit. You have to understand when they are um, not feeling well. You have to be very conscious of their eating habits, their litter box habits. Yes, rabbits use a litter box. Um, And you need to understand that they can live to be 10 years or more. Uh, you need to know that their bodies are fragile. 
Um, they're not robust animals, again, like dogs or cats. They can easily fracture their back uh, if, if you pick them up incorrectly. In fact, rabbits do not like to be picked up. So when I say picked up, it's generally because you have to take them to the vet. So it's, it, rabbits are wonderful companions. They, they're great companions. They're not for little kids. They're not starter pets. But if you feel that you want to have a rabbit in your home, um, please educate yourself. Go to a site like rabbit.org, which is the House Rabbit Society. They have chapters all over the world. And educate yourself about them. And know that you need to find a rabbit-savvy vet, somebody who can really treat rabbits because their care is unique. You know, they require specialty. And just, um, you know, give yourself over to it. Uh, allow yourself to, to enjoy a different type of animal, a different type of personality. And also, please, please, please keep them in your home with you. Don't have them in a backyard hutch. Don't keep them in a cage. These are rabbits who love to run. They love to play. They love to uh, be near you. They love to have the freedom to express themselves. So if you're going to have a rabbit, please have them in your home and uh, be, be cautious of other animals. You know, they might not get along with your dog or your cat. So anyway, that's, that's my answer with, with the asterisk. No, no. And then, uh, so that leads me into, do they have personalities? I mean, I imagine so, right? Oh, oh gosh, absolutely. I, <laughs> yeah. This, this, this little guy, Benito that we adopted, he is, he's full of beans. You know, he loves to, he, ha, he knows what time it is. He knows when it's dinner time. He knows when it's breakfast time. He knows when it's time for a treat. He knows how to get our attention. He knows that, you know, he has full run of the house. So he'll come into the bedroom early in the morning and he'll come around to my side of the bed. And he, our bed's so high, he can't jump onto it, unfortunately. But he, he knows how to wake me up. Uh, he, he knows how to come to me and, you know, pull on my pant leg or my sock if I'm sitting at the desk and don't notice him right away uh, to tell me that he wants to be petted. Uh, he loves to be talked to. Uh, they grind their teeth in contentment, much the way a cat would purr. And so when I pet his head or when I talk to him, you know, he grinds his teeth, closes his eyes. You know, he's just, and, and every rabbit I have known is the same way. You know, and they're all a little different. You know, they, they all have their own unique personalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animals do, animals do. Now, kind of one of my final questions, how can our listeners help rabbits in in you know, at the end of the book in Appendix A, you have kind of 10, 10 things people can do. But if you can just kind of summarize some of the things that, that you wrote about that, that you know, if, they, if they're if they not going to own a rabbit, what are some of the other things they can do out there? Great. Thanks for asking that, Chris. I appreciate that. It's, I think the overriding recommendation is to just please treat rabbits with kindness. And if you see rabbits in the wild, um, it's, I think it's a blessing. And some people, when they see them in their garden, don't feel so blessed. So if your garden is <laughs> overrun with rabbits, uh, you know, eating your flowers, look for humane solutions. And uh, there's plenty of research out there. There's plenty of information out there. Um, you can, you know, landscape your garden differently or something. And watch out for nests. So not all rabbits burrow underground safely. So before you mow your lawn, just check carefully for grass. And if you see a brown patch, make sure it's not hiding a nest under there. 
And if it is hiding a nest, you know, just please bypass that area because the rabbits will be gone shortly. Um, you can volunteer at your local shelter or your local rabbit rescue organization. Um, as I said, don't give rabbits as Easter presents. <clears throat> that's, a, that's an important one. Don't disturb young rabbits you think are orphaned. Uh, mother rabbits have a scent that they know predators pick up. And so the babies don't have that scent. And so they often, well, I shouldn't say often, they generally leave the rabbits, the baby rabbits alone for long periods of time. And they'll, the mother will be back. So please don't pick up a rabbit you feel is orphaned. If you do believe a baby rabbit, a wild rabbit is truly orphaned, please contact uh, a wildlife rescue group. And I say people, I ask people not to participate in rabbit exploitation. Um, don't wear their fur. Don't eat them. Of course, I say that for all animals. Don't eat them. Um, don't use products tested on animals. And, you know, support uh, rescue nonprofits. There's lots of groups out there who are helping rabbits that need your financial help. Yeah, and I'll just add that, that, you know, get a wildlife uh, specialist out there because especially wild rabbits, they stress out very easily and it kills them. And, 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 it, and it's not fun to deal with, uh, you know, many tears having to deal with, with little bunnies. So they're, they're, they're very, very difficult to work with and to save. And we have, I, I was sex successful. I did release some live rabbits in the wild, but it, it, they were very tough compared to squirrels and others. Final couple questions. Where can our listeners get the book? And then any other books you're working on that you want to mention? Uh, as far as where to find the book, it's available around the world. Um, you can, if you don't have it at your local independent bookstore, uh, you can ask them to order it for you, or you can get it online at uh, sites like Book Depository. Uh, they ship worldwide for free. Um, Mighty Ape in New Zealand carries it. Uh, Amazon, obviously. Um, but again, I, I just recommend people go to their local bookstore and just ask for it. It might take a few days for them to get it, but that'd be a great way to support them. Uh, and as far as uh, new books, I am just wrapping up a new book about eco-spirituality and human-animal relationships. It'll be out in May. It's just a, a short book that my publisher asked me to write. Um, so it's kind of, it's looking at the the way we exploit animals and connect with animals. So it's not just bad news, but there's some good news in there too. Uh, through the lens of eco-spirituality, which for listeners who might not be aware, is a way of uh, looking at nature in a balance. So humans are not necessarily superior to animals, but on equal footing morally and I guess every other way. So uh, it's a, as I say, it's a short book, but it's a fairly easy read. And I, I think people, uh, I hope people will like it. Well, and then just final question, any social media or websites that we could find you or oh, your work? Yes. Um, my main website is uh, just my name, Mark Hawthorne with an E.com and uh, Instagram. I'm Mark Hawthorne author, uh, Twitter, just Mark Hawthorne. Uh, I'm on Facebook and uh, I think, think that's it i think i have a youtube channel but i don't really post there very much but that's that i think that covers it well great we'll post those links uh on our website and our show notes when we get there but uh, the book again is the way of the rabbit uh, author mark mark hawthorne uh, thank you so much mark for your time fascinating to learn about these these animals that 
we like like I said in the beginning, we often forget how woven they are into our into our, our culture and society around the planet. So, thanks for bringing it to the light, and and thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.